Managing your 401k is hard. Bloom isn't. See what you could be doing to make your 401k better by getting a free analysis at bloom401k.com slash fool. That's bloom with three O's, 401k.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. We're talking healthcare today, May 2nd. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. My usual guest, Todd Campbell, is back from a trip to Mexico and calling in, although I bet you'd probably rather be unpacking right now. Todd, how was your trip? It was wonderful. It's great to be back on the show after a fantastic week spent down in a small town called Ajijic, Mexico, which is about an hour south of Guadalajara, right on Lake Chapala. And I tell you, some of the most gracious people and just wonderful food and, and just a fantastic uh, climate. It's right in the mountains and it's just it's just beautiful there. Sounds lovely. What was the best thing you ate? Oh boy, there was, you know, a funny thing. My son was there and my son loves Italian food and you wouldn't think you'd go to Mexico to get good Italian food. There was this wonderful Italian restaurant. I couldn't believe it. But uh, yeah, that was his favorite. I don't know. They do wonderful steak. They have some, they probably... I could probably have gone to a different restaurant for lunch and dinner for a month. There's so many great little places throughout. <laughs> That's awesome. That cracks me up about the Italian restaurant. That's globalization right there. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> and just, I mean, world-class desserts and world-class uh, food. They, there's one place in, um, uh, in, the, in the center of the village where they have a square uh, where you could just go and you could sit and have a fantastic um, cup of Mexican coffee. And just watch all of the all the kids playing their games in the square. It was just a really a really neat to go somewhere else where uh, English isn't the first your first language, and you kind of have to uh, muddle your way through and, and figure it all out. But but yeah, it was it was a great time. Yeah, sounds like an awesome experience, and we're also glad to have you back. So as our regular listeners know, you can reach out to our show via our show email address, industryfocusatfool.com. And lately, we've received quite a few emails about investing in funds, particularly people were wondering about some specific healthcare ETFs. And these emails really did disproportionately come into the healthcare show, which is why I feel justified in using a Wednesday edition of Industry Focus to talk about this topic. And so after doling out a bunch of fund investing advice to multiple different emails, I figured that there are probably enough people out there with similar questions that we should just do a show about it. And so today we'll be talking about investing in all sorts of funds, starting with some of the basics and a little bit of history, and then we'll get into strategy. Sound good to you, Todd? Yeah, I think this is going to be a really good uh, show as far as being able to help people maybe who are either relatively new to investing or trying to figure out um, different ways to try and, and spread their money out in their portfolio. Absolutely. So first definition I want to throw out there is an index fund. Todd, can you define that for me? Great. Okay, so an index fund, it doesn't pick and choose individual stocks to hold in a portfolio. Instead, what it does is it holds all of the stocks or bonds or whatever happen to be in an index, right? So it tracks an index, which of course raises the question, right? What's an index? Well, an index is basically a list of investments that's put together by some independent third party. And probably the most famous or well-known of those indexes is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 
Yep, absolutely. But as you mentioned, there are a ton of different types of index funds. So you can get a broad market fund like the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You can also get global or international funds. You can get sector specific funds, which that's a lot of what people are asking about in emailing us to ask about healthcare index funds. Um, there are also bond funds, as you mentioned. And so they're a really great way to give yourself exposure to specific parts of the market or the entirety of the market in a very low cost way. Right. And one of the most important important ones, Christine, right, that we always reference back to whenever we're on the show talking about the relative performance against the S&P 500 index, right? That's probably the one that's tracked the most that most people would theoretically want to own in their retirement accounts or whatever, uh, where you've got 500 of the biggest U.S. companies um, that are, are, are listed and tracked by these index funds. And then in each in that index, you could split it up into the individual baskets. For example, healthcare or finance or energy, if you wanted exposure simply to the index of that particular group. Yes. And so when you go about choosing an index fund, you can choose to invest in either a mutual fund or an ETF. So we're going to define both of those. A mutual fund pools together investors' money into a giant mega portfolio that's managed by a professional. It can be uh, purchased and sold only at the end of the trading day. And its price is based on the net asset value, which is the value of all of the fund's uh, assets minus the liabilities. You divide it by the number of shares. Now, mutual funds can be either active or passively managed. And so if you have an, a mutual fund that is an index fund, that is generally going to be a lot lower cost because all it's doing is matching the index that it reflects as opposed to the actively managed funds in which you're paying a fee towards a professional to actively curate the contents of that mega portfolio and try to beat the market that way. Right. And there's pluses and minuses to that, right, Christine? We'll get into that, I'm sure, later in the show. But you can have actively traded healthcare uh, mutual funds, or you can have these passive healthcare funds that, say, track the S&P 500 healthcare um, sector. Yep. So, a last definition for now would be ETF. So that is an exchange-traded fund. They're more similar to stocks than mutual funds are because they're traded like stocks. You can trade them throughout the day, uh, much like you would trade an individual security. And so the value of the ETF really depends on what investors think the underlying value is. And typically, the holdings will be disclosed daily as opposed to in a mutual fund. An active mutual fund will typically disclose its holdings on a quarterly or even a semi-annual basis. So things move a lot quicker with an ETF. You get people trading it day in and day out, and you know exactly what's in it every single day. Right. And there's also some advantages to that. I mean, you've got the interdate portability of it. You can buy or sell whenever you want to, but you're also able theoretically to buy it with any brokerage account uh, for any amount of money that you have to invest, where in a lot of times with mutual funds, you have to uh, put up a certain amount of money to be able to buy into a particular mutual fund, maybe $2,500 or $3,000, where if it, maybe you could get a brokerage account with $500, open it up and start with ETFs. Yep. So, really, all of this came to prominence in the mid-1970s with a guy named Jack Bogle, who founded a company that many of our listeners will be familiar with called Vanguard. And his whole uh, principle there was that you should be able to get exposure to a big basket of stocks at a very low cost. And 
this is something that I think we kind of take for granted today, but it really didn't exist at that point. So what Jack Bogle did was absolutely revolutionary. Um, I was part of a, a trip to Philly recently to go meet Bogle at Vanguard. And I have to say, I was a big fan prior to meeting him. But in talking to him, that man is so sharp. He's 88 years old, I, I believe, around there. And he's still so, so smart. He knew exact dates from back in the 70s when different things were happening. And I was just overall extremely impressed with them. The company is a colossal. They have $5.1 trillion in global assets under management. And they offer 180 different U.S. funds. They have 208 additional funds outside of the United States. And so that reaches 20 million investors across 170 countries. And, and here's the most impressive stat to me, their average expense ratio, which we'll unpack that a little bit later, but it's only 0.11%, meaning that you're paying a tenth of a percent to participate in owning these funds, which is so much lower than the rates that you were seeing prior to the creation of Vanguard and their low-cost funds. I don't know who I like to listen to more, Christine, Warren Buffett or uh, or Bogle. I mean, that those two guys, when they get talking, it just you just have to tune in. They just know so much about the markets, but yet they have very different approaches. You've got Buffett who will go out there. He's the ultimate active investment, right? Go out and buy individual stocks and hold them for the long term. And then you got Bogle who says, you know, I'm going to turn this whole thing upside down on its head and in 1975 start this company that is going to focus on owning a pooling together other people's money and owning a basket of stocks and just buying and holding that basket forever. And what's really interesting there is the two men are quite fond of each other and each other's strategies. For example, Warren Buffett made a bet that a passive S&P 500 index fund would outperform a basket of hedge funds over a 10-year period, so that actively managed type of fund. And so this bet concluded at the end of 2017. And Buffett won, and he won by a lot. And so Warren Buffett, who you think of as the, the king of picking great stocks and beating the market, still will say that for many, many people, the best bet that you can make and the best way to grow your wealth in the market is through a passive index fund. Yeah. And I, you know, when he has said when he passes away, that's what he wants his, his family's money to be invested in yeah. rather than in individual stocks. So I think that, that that's quite... Uh, quite a statement by such a great investor. You know, one of the interesting things that I was, when we were going over our notes and talking about this show, you know, Christine, I didn't really fully understand how Vanguard delivers those low fees to its to its shareholders. Yeah, they did, have a did, pretty incredible business model. Yeah. Did you know that they were a mutual company? I, I mean, did. That, that, yeah, yeah, so they're they're client owned, meaning that there are no outside owners that are seeking profits. Instead, if you own the funds, you own Vanguard. And so that 0.11%, that is the company's overhead. That is the blended average across all of the uh, the funds that they offer. That's the expense ratio because that's how much it takes as a percentage of assets to run Vanguard. Right. And with most investment companies, that, that money, that scale that you get from having more and more money under management, leveraging that against your fixed costs, 
that would go to the profits would go to, to, to whoever happened to own that company, right? But in Vanguard's case, it actually flows back to the shareholders and helps reduce their costs. It's a really interesting business model. And granted, we sound like we're doing an ad for Vanguard here, but I think it's important to understand why we're talking so much about Vanguard. And that's because they are the biggest manager of these index funds in out there. <clears throat> they pioneered it <clears throat> and they do a great job with it. <laughs> Yeah, I, we are definitely big fans of Vanguard and everything that they've done. Personally, they were my first investment. I remember my grandparents set me up with an account when I was pretty young. And when I was old enough to start investing my own money, when I started working part-time while I was still in school, that's where I put my money is I added to that Vanguard fund, and I still own it today. So I've been a fan of Vanguard for a very long time, and it was an absolute delight to meet Vogel last week. But <laughs> moving on, because they really should be paying us to to give all of this praise to them. Um, they don't need it, though. I think they get enough free advertising across Fool.com and elsewhere because everybody knows that Vanguard is pretty great. Yeah, 20 million, uh, 20 million investors and 5.1 trillion in assets under management. So I, I guess everybody pretty much is aware of them at this point. It's no secret. It's time to get your retirement on track and fix your 401k with Bloom. That's Bloom with three O's. Sounds tough? It's not. In fact, it only takes five minutes. Go online to bloom401k.com fool and simply connect your existing 401k in a few easy steps. Then sit back and relax while Bloom performs an unbiased analysis of the funds in your account and chooses the best mix to meet your goals while minimizing hidden investment fees. Bloom researches, invests, manages, monitors, and grows your 401k while you relax. Bloom's pricing is $10 per month regardless of account size. Bloom is one of the best, fastest-growing robo-advisors fighting for your right to retire. Bloom is so simple. In fact, the hardest part about this is remembering that there are three O's in Bloom. Go to bloom401k.com fool and enter promo code fool for your first month free and see the difference Bloom could make in your retirement. All right, Todd, I think it's time to address an underlying tension in this show, which is the fact that we mostly talk about picking individual stocks. And at The Motley Fool, we very much believe that you can beat the market by investing smartly in well-chosen stocks. So what gives? Why all the lavish praise on fund investing? It is downright hard uh, for many people to take a hands-off approach to an individual stock portfolio. And it's very hard to, to, to gather together enough money to be able to construct a portfolio that's diversified. And that's why I think that index funds and mutual funds are so popular and that they can play a role for a lot of investors in, 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 in their uh, uh, investment lives, right? You can't control Mr. Market. Mr. Market can go soaring higher or it can collapse to lows in any particular period of time. But what you can control is the expenses that you pay to have your money managed. So I think that when you look at the different ways that you can invest, if you're not somebody who's going to be able to keep yourself from pressing the sell button every time something bad happens to one of the stocks that you happen to love, or if you're just getting started and you don't have enough money to diversify yourself, then you know mutual funds can 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 be very valuable. Absolutely. I think it speaks to a broader point about being humble and recognizing that 
it's possible that you don't have the knowledge or you don't want to spend the time looking into a certain sector of the stock market, or maybe you're somebody that doesn't really want to to pick out individual stocks at all. And so they they definitely serve a very good purpose for, as you mentioned, diversification and for alleviating some of the uh, the ways that you can go wrong when emotionally investing. Um, we know for a fact, history shows us that trading in and out of stocks doesn't generally go well for people. People tend to see the market go up and up and up, um, and they ha- or down, and they have an even more emotional response to that. But history will show you that if you just sit tight, that's probably the best strategy for you. And so, I, I, I do think that there there's absolutely a place in many investors' portfolios for funds, whether it's the majority of your portfolio, and maybe you might complement that with a few stock picks here and there. Or maybe it's something where you have a diversified uh, basket of, of stocks that you've picked out, but say you're missing exposure to international stocks because you find international markets to be kind of confusing, and you recognize that it might be a better strategy for you to just choose an international index fund to get that exposure without having to try to learn it all yourself. Right. And you can, looking at it in a sector perspective too, Christine, you could say to yourself, well, maybe I like these three biotech stocks, right? But biotech stocks that can be incredibly volatile, they trade because of uh, clinical trial successes and failures, there's political concerns, there's all sorts of things that can move these things up and down. And maybe you say to yourself, well, I'm going to own those three, but you know what else? I'm also going to go out and I'm going to buy an ETF of healthcare stocks and give myself a sort of diverse basket of that as well. And I know some people go out and they'll buy the S&P 500 fund, and then they'll add in and tuck around some additional stocks, maybe small cap stocks that aren't you know, in the S&P 500 to sort of round out their portfolio. There's a lot of different ways that you can use these funds um, to, to, to help broaden out your exposure to the market and, and improve returns. You know, one of the drawbacks, obviously, of these index funds, Christine, is that you're only getting whatever happens to be in that index, right? So I guess that's kind of like the bad side of it. You're not going to beat the market because you are investing in the market if it's the S&P 500. And if it's in the S&P 500, you're not really going to get exposure to small cap stocks, right? Because in those small cap stocks, oftentimes can be some of the the, the biggest performers. I mean, it's like buying Amazon in 1997 or whatever it wouldn't be in the S&P 500. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, a big reason why there are small cap funds that are offered. So, it's not like you're prohibited from investing in these small caps, but you might have to go actively find them. I want to circle back to a point that you made earlier about investing in a biotech ETF, because I think it's worth musing a little bit on why our email account gets so many emails specifically about healthcare funds more so than any other industry funds. And so I was thinking about why this could possibly be. And I'm only speculating here, but I want to say that healthcare is perceived as a riskier place to bet on individual stocks. On this show, we talk all the time about clinical trial failure rates and tiny companies with just one drug that are binary stocks. They're either going to soar or they're going to plummet. And so I think a lot of people have a little bit of trepidation about trying to pick out the the winners when the odds are really a coin flip sometimes. But yet, you look at the demographic and the industry tailwinds that are supporting the industry as a whole, and I think people realize that they do want exposure to the healthcare market. 
they just don't necessarily want to try to play a guessing game and try to understand the science uh, behind some of these drugs and picking them out. And hopefully this show has generally been helpful for the people that do want to pick out individual stocks in the healthcare sector. But I really don't blame anyone who would either like to complement their existing biotech stocks with a biotech ETF or just avoid the individual stock picking in the sector entirely and get that broad exposure. Yeah, and taking that even one step further and saying to yourself, okay, well, I know that, you know, obviously pharmaceuticals and and biologics, those are going to play a big role in taking care of us as we get increasingly older, live longer, and and there's a larger population. But there's also medical devices and medical equipment. There's health insurers. There's so many different pieces of healthcare to invest in. And very hard to do that as an individual uh, without ending up investing $10 in each individual stock. Yeah, and when you're investing small amounts in each stock, and if you pay a commission on those investments, it's pretty hard to get a return that even just surpasses the commission that you're paying. And so you do want to make sure that every time you buy an individual stock, it's of a substantial enough size that the commission isn't taking out a big chunk of your potential gains before they even happen. You know, that's a great point, Christine, because turnover is is a real concern. I don't think people really think about the impact that it has on your returns over time. You know, study after study has shown that the lower the, your expense ratio is, the greater uh, the potential, you know, nest egg can become. Uh, matter of fact, Vanguard had done a study that showed that uh, if you invested in something that had a, a 0.11% expense ratio uh, versus something with 068 or 6-0, whatever that was, uh, expense ratio, that over 30 years, you'd add an additional $70,000 to your nest egg just from the savings. That is mind-blowing. And so turning to strategy about how you pick out funds, when I look at different funds to try to compare them, that is the number one thing that I look at is the expense ratio. This is something that will be part of all funds. It is, as we alluded to earlier, the operating expenses. If it's actively managed, it's also probably going to include a fee to the managers. So when you're looking at your expense ratios, these numbers might look small because they're all maybe 1%, but they actually do really add up. I mean, Todd, I think the example that you just gave is extremely indicative that a small bit when you compound it over time really makes all the difference. So make sure that you look into expense ratios very, very carefully. Um, One tiny detail that you'll want to note The net expense ratio incorporates temporary discounts sometimes. So if you see a net expense ratio and a gross expense ratio, pay attention to the gross expense ratio. That one's more accurate because it represents the non-discounted rate, which is what you'll probably wind up paying in the future. Other fees to take into consideration, the sales load. Um, No-load funds came into prominence in the 1970s as the cost of trading came down. Prior to that, it was pretty expensive to buy stocks, and so funds had the sales load to compensate for that. But now that it's relatively cheap to buy and sell stocks, to me, it's really not even acceptable to to have a load on a fund, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But my advice um, would be, in general, try to find no-load funds. well, you know, just to tag on to the back end of that, there's another, there's, there's a, also another school of thought there. Um, you know, loaded funds aren't bad if they also give you a correspondingly lower expense ratio and you hold them for a long time. Because a lot of times what you'll see is that loaded funds also have ongoing expenses that are lower than 
the expense ratio for the no load fund. So you kind of have to build that into your thinking as you're figuring out, do I want to invest in A class shares or B class shares of this mutual fund or whatever? And each one of those will have, you know, a different expense ratio, perhaps a different load associated with it. So something to just bear in mind. Yeah, that's a good nuance because the load can come either on the front end, meaning when you first buy it, or on the back end, so when you sell it. And sometimes a back end load will decrease over time. And so if you plan on holding this for a very long period of time, you might find that the math works out where you can have a back load fund or back end loaded fund um, with a low expense ratio for the, uh, the annual maintenance. And that's fine. That that ends up uh, being favorable for you. So there, yeah, yeah. yeah of- and the other thing too that because we talked about ETFs is that it's important I think for our listeners to know that a lot of brokerage houses now are offering commission free trading on ETFs. So if you hold them for a certain number of days, you're not going to pay a commission if you trade on. So that's another kind of thing to keep in mind if you're trying to figure out do I want an ETF or do I want to go with a mutual fund. Yep. Totally agreed. Um, One aspect of funds that I think people probably overweight their attention to, but it is still important to consider, is what is actually in the fund. So, what is, uh, well, the strategy is definitely important. I don't think that I would say that considering strategy is something people overweight or over allocate attention to. But there are nuances about what goes into different funds that say that they have the same strategy. For me, this is not as important as uh, the, the fees and the expense ratio and the load and all that. But it is still important to consider some things to look at would be how is the fund made up? Is it, say, uh, market cap weighted or is there another weighting like being equally weighted where every single stock in the portfolio represents the same proportion of the whole portfolio? Um, You can also look at ratings. Morningstar is a popular source for ratings, which can tell you a lot about uh, the (laughs) a lot of different qualities about the stock itself. So you can go to Morningstar and read a lot more about how they do their rating systems. Yeah, and there's other considerations too. I mean, the 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 industry continues to innovate. There are now target date funds that will automatically adjust your bond and your stock percentage um, as you get older. Uh, keeping it even more simple for you. There's leveraged funds that will will lever your money three to one or two to one, which are high, very high risky investments. You know, one of the things to consider if you're looking at actively managed funds is consider the manager and how long that manager has been there because people do retire and you don't necessarily want to uh, own a fund where the guy's only been there one year and you're buying that fund because um, the woman who had been running it uh, you know, was the one who was responsible for building up that wonderful track record that, that's convinced you t- to go out and invest in it. So consider the size of the fund, consider the manager tenure, consider, you know, the returns over a longer period, like a five or 10 year period. And of course, that all important expense ratio. Yep, absolutely. Um, one thing that I want to mention before we wrap up is that many uh, of the most common funds that people hold will track the entire market. Um, These are very common in, say, your 401k. So many, many, many investors out there hold something that represents the entire market. And the reason that I bring this up is because sometimes it's hard to remember that these funds give you exposure to some of the biggest companies that are out there. I mentioned earlier that some uh, some funds are weighted via uh, market cap, whereas some are equally weighted. The most common funds are market cap weighted, meaning if you are a gigantic company, you're going to comprise a fairly large amount of even a broad-based index fund. So, to give a more concrete example, 
an S&P 500 ETF contains roughly 3.8% Apple shares, 3.2% Microsoft shares, 2.8% Amazon shares. The list goes on. You can Google this pretty easily. But if you are buying Apple separately from that, it's kind of important to remember that you already have 3.8% of however much money you've allocated to the S&P 500 in Apple. And this is something that I forget about all the time. And I'm I'm an Apple shareholder. And so I I constantly have this battle with myself of, do I really want more than that percentage of Apple? Um, And maybe you do, but maybe you also don't. So important to keep that in mind when you're looking at your overall portfolio allocation. That carries over into healthcare too, Christine, right? I mean, if you buy a healthcare ETF and it's market cap weighted, you're probably going to end up with a lot of Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> you know, matter of fact, Vanguard's healthcare ETF, I think the symbol there is VHT. I think there are 362 stocks that that ETF owns, but the top 10 stocks represent 44% of the portfolio. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest arguments against investing in funds is that you don't really get a say in that. I mean, maybe when you look at that list of the top 10 healthcare giants that are in some of these healthcare funds, maybe you think that seven out of 10 are not good investments. And to me, at least, that's a very compelling reason not to invest in funds. Um, Of of course, I think there are very good reasons to invest in funds too. But as with any investment decision, there are going to be pros and cons. So I guess in wrapping up, Although at The Motley Fool, we strongly believe that you can beat the market by choosing individual stocks, we also wanted to recognize that there is a time and a place for investing in funds as a part of a smart market beating strategy. So to all of our listeners who emailed in, I hope this has been helpful. Thank you so much for your questions. Keep them coming. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening and Fool On. Fool On.